by containing it and not venting the energy, you begin to feel that something is pushing its way up. Hmm. What's pushing its way up is probably not anxiety. The anxiety is the ego's ambivalence about what's going to be revealed. The thing that's revealed is almost always life-giving. Hey everybody, welcome to No Small Thing, the podcast dedicated to helping you live a less certain and more curious life. I'm Scott. And I am Mace. Welcome to episode 149. Table, drum roll, tap. Table roll. We are titling this episode, Dreams? (laughs) (laughs) We didn't talk about the title. With this Union Life podcast. Dreams with a shoulder shrug emoji and a question mark. I think that is what we're going to title it. I, I, I almost want to call it this union life dreams hashtag dreams for something. It's like dreams 70,000. We're never, we're going to do so many dreams episodes. Dreams five with this union life. I think it's dreams five dreams five. Essentially all what you're about to get into is there is this podcast that I love. It was almost the inspiration for dreams or moved us along. It for sure moved us along in our dream thoughts. Um, and I'm really into Carl Jung. Scott's into Carl Jung. I recently got like very into Jung. And so was found this podcast called This Jungian Life. And we reached out to the hosts and there's three hosts, but two of them, Joseph Lee and Lisa Marciano said, yes, we'll come on your podcast. Bam. And so that's what you're getting into. We gave the, the premise of let's talk about dreams. And we talked a lot about dreams in this, but we talked about a lot more than dreams. Um, it was just kind of also talking with folks who view the world through this kind of union lens, mm-hmm, I would mm-hmm, say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think this, an episode like this is the closest Mason I can get for our listeners of getting you in front of real professionals. Yeah. Like these are therapists and they are dream interpreters mm-hmm. really. So like when we do these big disclaimers, Oh, we're not therapists. We're not, we're not professionals. We're not dream interpreters. It's like, okay, but here, here are some. Mm-hmm. And obviously they aren't omniscient. They all aren't all knowing. They are humans taking stabs at some interpretations, but you know, it will be obvious when you start listening to these folks, they, they, they're high quality, uh, competent, very, it, it felt spooky at times felt spooky for sure. And I feel like there was something really cool of like just kind of seeing the way different modalities play out or like different Mm -hmm. perspectives play out because it was so fascinating having them. We, we interpreted a dream of mine. I brought a dream and they interpreted it. And something that is really particular about kind of union analysis is this, this drawing upon of archetypes. Yeah. And I've read about it in the books and been like, Oh, these archetypes. And I've, honestly been wondering how does it play out? And it played out really fascinatingly in a conversation. It was like the way in which the conversation unfolded, it was like this language that they were sharing and what they were communicating was just so rich in symbolism Mm -hmm. and looking at everything so symbolically. And it was just really cool. And it just kind of like, here we are less certain, more curious. That's our podcast title. And I just think it's 
was a very fascinating example of like, what does a lens do for a conversation or what uh, does, what does a way of, of interpreting or a way of seeing things change how you think of things? It changes a lot. It changes a lot. <laughs> and it was like very curious to watch this unfold in our yeah. conversation and see the insights or see the roads that get traveled because of a certain lens in which someone approaches something. Also, if you're sort of a listener who's like listening with a snobby lens and you're like, oh, it's Carl Jung, not Jung. It's like, I hear that all the time. Is it? I don't know. That's what I don't know. I say <laughs> Jung. I think it's Jung. And then, but I hear people say it's Jung and I'm like, fine. I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever get to the bottom of it. And I don't really care all that much if that offends someone. I'm sorry. And I would consider taking back those thoughts, but <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I feel like at some point the, in the conversation, it comes up with these. Well, I'm sure they say, Jung, Jung. so Jung, I guess, Jung. I guess this is for you to see. I, I imagine how they pronounce it is the right way. Yeah. Um, also they have, um, true like NPR voices. They're like, hello, Scott and Mace. Yeah. I can't even do it. Amazing. So good to be with you today. Yeah, it was a really cool, I, I really love this interview. And I was kind of, you know, honestly a little geeking out before and during because I've listened to this podcast a lot and found it to be really helpful and just loved the perspectives. And so it was super cool to be in conversation. And um, hopefully we'll do it again. I know. Hopefully we'll do it again. So as I said, we talked for a bit in the beginning. I guess I'm just giving you, letting you all know what to expect. Um, we talked and it was just kind of ideas. And then I brought forward a dream, which was fascinating and did not know where it would take us. And it took us fascinating roads. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is crazy. Yeah. And then towards the end, Scott got kind of like an archetypal interpretation, archetypal, um, from Joseph. That was really fascinating. Kind of just unpacking your, like the archetype of the father. Yeah. It was, it was really, uh, none of us knew, none of us expected any of this. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that was really cool. Um, and I think, I think folks will really enjoy this, especially folks who follow along in our episodes. We do a lot of episodes kind of dabbling with different psychology or psychoanalysis topics. Um, and this is kind of obviously in that wheelhouse. Do you want to promote something? I do. So this, this podcast, first I'll promote that. Go check out after this, you listen to our episode, their podcast, if you enjoy it, this Jungian Life podcast. J-U-N-G-I-A-N. Amazing. Jungian. 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 And they have this thing called Dream School that you can sign up for as well if you go to this com, and you can sign up to like do a course where you learn how to interpret your dreams. So if you were fascinated by what happened with my dream, there's more of that to be had. Um, it seems so legit. If you've liked legit. any of our dream conversations and you want to go a step further, again, we're not the ones. This is this is the one. Yeah, yeah, totally. We're playing around and dabbling. Maybe one day we'll have our own dream school. I'd love that. And I think it's interesting because we're going to do object relations next week. So this is funny that we're going from Jung to object relations because in the timeline of psychoanalysis, that's kind of the next thing. Mm. Um, and I've had a dream interpreted in therapy and it was super different like very different what is brought forward. So I think that's also this really fun aspect of like, again, less certain, more curious, like whatever unfolds in a conversation, it's like, oh, bring in a different person, something entirely different. And also just as true and insightful might unfold. It's Love like, that. it's just so cool the way that happens. Um, okay, so you can check out this Union Life. 
Also, Lisa, who is one of the people we interviewed, just came out with a new book, or it's pre-ordered. You can pre-order it. So she just wrote it, and it's on motherhood. Um, and so you can go to her website, lisamarciano.com. I will spell it. Sweet. L-I-S-A-M-A-R-C-H-I-A-N-O.com. Um, and I will just read the, the really brief description of it because um, it seems like a really cool book. Um, it's titled Motherhood, Facing and Finding Yourself. Uh, and this is just the brief description. Few life experiences challenge us like motherhood. Being a mother will tire us out, fill us with dread, and move us to tears. It will inspire joy, self-doubt, hilarity, contentment, rage, terror, shame, irritation, inadequacy, grief, anxiety, and love. We will probably see ourselves at our best and at our very worst. Motherhood is the ultimate confrontation with yourself. It will help you to discover the treasure that lies within. Wow. So that's the book that she's coming out with. That sounds and beautiful. It was really fascinating too, because we talked about this idea of motherhood and fatherhood. And um, I, towards the end, was kind of like, where's where's the gender bending in this? Oh, right. Oh, and, yeah. I forgot about that. And it was fun to have even that conversation with them and just hear back from them. So towards the end, that was kind of a fun piece of the conversation as well. It's like wondering where's where's the place beyond motherhood and fatherhood and these archetypes, but also seeing how even just an archetype can apply to anyone. And what does it mean to just use an archetype for understanding? Right. Well said. And and then when we talked, when we opened the door to that conversation, some new, very fascinating uh, imagery came up. Yes. Oh my gosh. So seriously. Get ready, everybody. Yeah. I um, think that's it. I think that's it. This is a really like, I think this is one of our best interviews. It was super fun. Likewise. So a, a, a high quality episode, a high quality interview with a high quality podcast team. I really think you're going to love this. Yeah. So um, hope you enjoy. We'll catch you next week. Okay. Should we have them? Should we have you guys start by just like introducing yourself? That's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're here. We're here live with this Jungian podcast. Reunion life. Um, Who wants to go first? So, sure. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll chime in for a moment. Uh, so this Jungian life is a podcast that Lisa and I and our friend Deb all kind of put together. We had gone through the training program ourselves and had a tremendous kind of rapport. And then post-graduation, as with many circumstances, there was this kind of postpartum despair that everything that had built up seemed to just be dissolved. Mm. And so Lisa had a dynamic idea that, you know, we should all come together and keep the spirit alive and figure out how to do a podcast mm. on the fly, mm. not even knowing anything about it. And that's continued to evolve so uh, I'm a Jungian analyst. I live in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I consult uh, internationally. Hmm. And we also have a, a platform, an educational platform. And right now we have something called Dream School, where people can learn to analyze their own dreams. Hmm. Oh, my goodness. We have to take Dream School. I know. I know. Like, <laughs> we need to sign up for Dream School. <laughs> hey, can I just check? Are we actually recording? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I, and we can record on here too, but we're recording on our, um, like the audio part. Oh, but yeah, you should record on here too. Just as backup. Okay, cool.
that's a good that. catch. So, I'm glad you were thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just know I noticed it. I didn't yeah. say the little red dot yeah. up yeah. in the left hand corner. So the recording. <laughs> I thought, uh oh. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm Lisa Marciano, and I'm a Jungian analyst, and um, I uh, live and practice in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And yeah, just like Joseph said, we uh, we missed being in training together, and I had this crazy thought to do a podcast and I mentioned Joseph and they were both like yes and then Deb goes what's a podcast (laughs) (laughs) so it was great and how long have you guys been doing it now we start actually this is just about our third birthday we started Mm. middle of April 2018 that's almost exactly us that's almost exactly we were May 2018 yeah oh that's cool so that's That's really fun it feels like a short time and a long time I don't know what I mean by that. Yeah. But, well, mm-hmm. I have a que- I have an interview question, which is how did you find this union life, Mace? How did I find them? Yeah. Well, I was just telling them. So I found them because I was studying Jung. I was starting to read Jung and like I had a lecture on him, I think, and was like, where, where can I find more? Which I am notoriously bad student in the sense that I like to just go find my own research. It's like they'll <laughs> tell me what books to read and I'm like, okay, yeah. but I'm going to deep dive my own route. <laughs> and so that was kind of me as Jung was introduced. And then I was like, well, what is there to say on Jung? And I stumbled upon y'all's podcast. And I think dreams might've been the first episode I listened to, but I quickly listened to like seven that day. I think, <laughs> I think I just was like sucking in all the information and just kind of getting lost in the, the world of Jung and the mythologies and the symbols and like starting to make these connection points. And um, so you all kind of, in, in my world helped me to then when I went back to read the stuff for school, I was like, Oh, it makes sense now. Like mm. this is making oh, sense. Really, I'm seeing, really great. Um, I'm seeing the dots be connected kind of thing. That's terrific because, um, you know, I was introduced to young, uh, well, I mean a couple different ways, but meaningfully by reading some books that were written by Jungian analysts, but Mm. they were really written for a popular audience. And I've always, you know, there were a few great popularizers of Jung, like James Hollis and Clarissa Pinkola Estes and Linda Leonard and Robert Johnson and and a handful of other people. And I've always really admired them because um, they can take these ideas that can be very dense, very difficult to unpack, super erudite and uh, just, just a, difficult to penetrate mm-hmm. and make them accessible mm. without dumbing them down. And I think yeah. in a sense, that's what we've tried to capture in the podcast. So that makes me really happy. No, yeah. it, it totally has. And I think uh, alongside that, I ended up, because I have access to these databases, watching some union analysts and watching like uh, a therapy with the Mandala. And, you know, I, I, I do, I think that you guys helped to like break some concepts down. Um, and see the role that the therapist plays in making the connections. Um, yeah, super cool. That was very much part of our vision. Uh, Jungian work had really fallen into this kind of esoteric dark hole mm. in the culture. And we were hoping that we could inspire people like having coffee at a kitchen table in Peoria yeah. to think that Jung is interesting again and to think their dreams are interesting. And so we really think of ourselves as kind of the the first door mm-hmm. that a lot of people might pass through and then go on to all the other rich and much more erudite mm-hmm. material beyond that. 
Right, Which, of course, hacks. Macy, you've done. Hacks. Yeah, no, it, it totally is kind of what's happened. It's, and I was like, okay, now I get the Red Book. Like, now I'm reading the Red Book. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I would be really curious, like, if if someone were to say, why are you so interested in Jung? Like, what brought you to want to become a union analyst? Like, what if you could nail down, what what was it for you? The one thing. Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah obviously it's more than one. <laughs> I think for for me, the the ground was seeded in my late teens when I started reading about Kabbalah Mm. and kind of Western mysticism. Mm. Mm. So that was introducing me to this language of archetypes and the nature of the unconscious, at least from that kind of paradigm. And then by the time I got to my senior year in undergrad, I was taking an advanced theories of psychology course and there was a section on the European psychologists, uh, Freud and Jung. And Jung's work so resonated with this model that mm-hmm. I had already integrated and mm-hmm. the cosmology that I had integrated that I thought, ah, this guy's this guy's talking about <laughs> all the things that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. And one day I'll become an analyst and that took about another 25 years yeah Jeez. yeah i mean for me it was uh i mean just in short it was just that it struck me as truth and Mm. i was when i i mean i had been exposed to young as a kid actually but when it when it really landed for me i was in agony i mean I mean, literally, I think I was in more pain that day than I've ever, emotional pain than I've ever been in any mm. other time of my life. And this book just dropped in my lap. Mm. Mm. And and just reading this book, it, it felt like someone was just totally um, unspooling this incredibly painful, naughty thing that I'd been going through. And mm. it was like, you know, it was it was revelatory and it was soothing and it was healing and it, and it just it like opened up a whole world. I mean, I was like a different person by the time I finished the book. Mm. So um, so so yeah, just and it's always struck me as this is just there's just truth here. Mm. Yeah. And and how would you guys describe that? Like for people that don't know Young very well which I guess I would be considered. I mean, I know who he is and I know the basics, but uh, what is it about that? What is it that felt like truth or what is it that helped untangle some of the knots? Well, I, I think for me, I'm thinking back to reading that book. It is the sense that there is meaning, hmm. that there's meaning in, in life and that there's meaning in our suffering and I want to call it this kind of archetypal or symbolic or perhaps even mythological perspective on our lives. And so uh, one of the things that this book did was frame what I was going through in mm. the symbolic language, which made me, well, it let me know what story I was in. Mm. And that was tremendously relieving. And it, it tied my suffering at the time to the universal human experience, which is also always uh, hmm, healing. It helps you accept what you're going through, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think as we've been doing our podcast and having conversations 
that, that float around all these sorts of topics. Um, the mind and religion and mysticism and then a bunch of other weird things too. But, um, well, and then going to therapy ourselves, mm-hmm. um, I heard somebody say one time it was a psychoanalyst and they said, uh, therapy is, uh, um, necessarily antisocial in the sense that you're creating a space where the regular social norms are not, um, containing your thoughts really mm-hmm. and you're taking your mind seriously mm-hmm. and you're not um you know poo-pooing your feelings and the symbols and the dreams and this is a space where all of a sudden all of that can be explored and validated and um the more you can re- like break out of that social cage so to speak of like oh what's my therapist going to think of me or this is crazy and it's like well your mind is just your mind <laughs> you know and the more you can explore that, but I mean, I think, I feel like I'm just starting on the journey, Yeah. but dreams are another part of that. I was saying that to my brother last week, who's a, um, analytic philosopher. So he really gets really skeptical about dreams and therapy and emotions. These are like things that are not, you can't really, you know, put into a proof or something like that, but I've, I've found it to be very healing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that Jung took what you just said, Scott, uh, even a little bit further, that not so much the process is antisocial, but that all of the inhibitions that you had just listed that block us from sharing our inner life with other people are internalized, Mm. are kind of installed into our minds, into our souls, And we become, even within ourselves, a truncated version that we are always unconsciously accommodating the expectations of our families, religions, school systems, Mm. so that we forget the parts of us that have been banished into the wilderness. Mm. So Jung talked about even a more radical action, which is to route out all of these colonizing forces to, to analyze them into um, a kind of depotentiated state. Mm-hmm. And that with that inner freedom, the central self, which is embedded and has not been lost, will begin to rise in a kind of internal revolution, Man. which is not conditioned by the environment. Right. That's beautiful. It sounds like a little mini sermon. In a, in a non-religious <laughs> way, I suppose, but yeah, I've I think one thing that struck me in reading Jungian stuff was reading him talk about the unconscious as being this like living, creative, growing piece of ourselves. Because mm-hmm. I think up until reading Jung, I was kind of seeing the unconscious as like this stagnant thing that you dig up. Like, yeah. oh, I'm going to go. Which is very and, much the Freudian sense. Yeah, then. like I'm going to go dig up this dinosaur that's underneath me or something like that, this like dead thing. And I think Jung invited this because I've always considered myself like a mystic or, you know, like not always, but, you know, Recently. started to. <laughs> and I think Jung's understanding of the unconscious as this living, active, creative thing that's moving forward and it's not like you're uncovering a a dead thing you're uncovering a living thing that's growing and changing is like that to me was like like struck me so much and and it it invites so much more it it makes the the idea of 
unpacking these these truncated selves is not just like oh I'm gonna dig up something that's always been there it's like no I'm gonna dig up like some living thing that will get to then keep living mm. Mm. Wow. yeah that's that's a beautiful distinction and that was an important part of of Jung's beliefs and it was one of the key things that differentiated his views from Freud and in that sense one of the things that I found with getting acquainted with Jung is, is it's a it's a beautiful way of looking at the world mm-hmm. and and it, it's profoundly optimistic also yeah i mean was it like the teleological is that the right word looking yes. forward <laughs> yeah 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 it, 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 jung's kind of looking more forward not just like your dreams are not just telling you about your past but like right. maybe saying something about your future yes the idea of telos comes from these um ancient greek philosophers mm-hmm. and a vision of the world that everything in the universe is purposive and it is moving towards its fullest self-expression. And if one takes that stance, even if it's just a theoretical stance, and then looks at what's happening in the world in life in oneself, it inherently creates this spirit of expectancy Mm. Mm. and gives us a sense that we can trust even our suffering to be bringing us towards something that is necessary. Hmm. I think that's another thing on my journey because I grew up, we we still are doing like, well, me specifically doing like Christian ministry. And I went, you know, Mm -hmm. got my master's of divinity at a seminary and it's been nice. I keep using this word repurposing like a lot of the theological and religious concepts and language because even what you were talking about like the teleological there's also this idea of like heaven and god's kingdom and jesus talking about god's coming kingdom and you and and it sounds similar and i and i like i like all these disciplines and philosophies and theologies to more work together rather than you know compete and it's like yeah we can all be working together to bring something towards a better world a higher level of consciousness or something like that is and, and all the language works, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and that's helped me make sense of my stuff too, a little bit of, of uh, yeah, dreams and, and religious language and imagery and whether or not it's literal isn't important, you know? <laughs> well, and, and Jung would say that religious lang- language is everywhere and has a, the ring of truth to it mm-hmm. because we come into the world wired to seek meaning and yeah. to seek a way to relate to the infinite. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think just the idea of, I think this might've been one of your episodes, but I think just listening to your episodes was training me to think of dreams a little bit more like this, but like the, the imagery of a snake and how that could be very ancient and, and, and hardwired into our bodies, just physiologically speaking. And then, obviously adding our own personal experiences with snakes into the mix too. But Mm -hmm. that's something that's in our minds religiously, philosophically. Uh, It's so interesting to explore it that way on many levels. Yeah. That there are universals. Yeah. And because there are universals, as we go back in time anthropologically, or even look at the emergence of new religious systems, there are identifiable dynamics Mm-hmm. that we can see repeated over and over again. And as Jung recognized that through working with his own psychiatric patients, 
he began to see psychotic patients talking about things they could not possibly have known intellectually. But he was reading about when he was studying ancient papyri that was coming out of Egypt. And he was, you know, hearing his psychotic patients hallucinating the things that were being written about thousands of years ago, which of course blew his mind. Yeah. But then created this, created this confidence in him that these universals are not only true, but they're alive. Yes. Still alive in the human soul and conditioning us. Oh. Which kind of connects to this idea of the unconscious being alive. Like the collective unconscious is alive and growing. It's not also dead. It's like it's moving forward. And that it is the source of life, actually. Yes. That the ego rests on this unstoppable river and does not know that until it wakes up to its own con- situation. Unstoppable river. That is a powerful mm. image. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Um, mm. I'm realizing that this account, which normally doesn't do this, is um, saying that our meeting time is running out. Um, so I'll just, uh, maybe when it's down to like two minutes, we'll end it. So we don't have to see that over our heads. And I'll just send another okay. link if that's fine. Sure. That's <laughs> totally fine. We should have used my account. <laughs> I know. I know, but your computer wasn't here. Yeah, shoot. Um, well, I mean, I guess the 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 obvious question is how 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 did you start prioritizing dream conversations in the podcast and and what's that journey been like for you all well i had the thought initially when i was conceptualizing the podcast that it might be um you know i i had this idea that we would pick a different topic every week mm-hmm. And uh, we didn't know when we started how many topics we had. Now we just know that they're infinite topics. Yep. So we're yep. never gonna know. <laughs> you guys can relate to that. Yeah. Yes. And then we wanted to talk about a listener's dream and thought that that would be a good way to help people feel connected to the podcast. Mm. You know, if you submit your dream, then maybe you're going to make a point of listening to see if we talk about your dream and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing and wasn't sure if it was going to work, but we launched the request for dreams uh, maybe a month or two before we went live Mm. and um, got plenty of uh, initial submissions. Now we've had, I forget it's, it's over a thousand. I think dreams have been submitted. Wow. People submit dreams just about every day. And, um, and you, you know, we didn't know how it was going to work at first because ordinarily when you work with dreams clinically, you never do it without the dreamer present. Mm. Right. Right. Mm. So it, we're doing something a little bit different because we're really just working off the information that's contained in the dream. Yeah. So we're really just, just going with the, the context that's given, but you know, what we found is that many times people will write into the podcast and say, thank you so much for analyzing my dream. That was so helpful. Mm. I can't, I can't believe that you, you know, got this, this, and this just Mm. from the dream. Mm. So it's really, I mean, I already was, you know, sort of in awe of dreams and the information that they contain, but working with them like this on the podcast and then hearing people write in and just say, my God, how did you land on that? Hmm. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty stunning. Wow. Well, then it feels like some kind of testament to like the dream material being like something that you can work with and then the insights made. And it's like, it seems like some testament to the, the dreams 
saying something like the power of that dream in a way. Absolutely. That's really cool. You know, it strikes me that do you remember seeing it? Remember holograms, you know, if, if you, if you have a hologram and you cut a little piece of it, you will have the the entire image contained in the little piece. So if oh, you have a, I didn't know uh, that. Yeah. Holy mm-hmm. smokes. If you, if you huh. have a 10 foot by 10 foot hologram and you huh. cut off one, that's just a square inch the entire image will be in that square What inch. a metaphor. Yeah, and yeah. somehow dreams are a little bit like that. It's like huh. there's all of the information. There's so much information about that psychic situation just in those few images. Cool. That's really powerful to think about. I was thinking this phrase, because I was watching this master class recently just for fun. In the art world, they have this phrase that I had never heard of called the ready-made. And it's like something that's already mm-hmm. there that you can build off on and feel inspired from. And it feels so similar with dreams. It's like it's right there. It's right there for you to start talking about. It's free. <laughs> you know? It is. I yeah. know. Dreams are like it's like free information on, yeah. to your unconscious. <laughs> well, and it's not just your unconscious because... I mean, it is your unconscious, but there's something really deeply spiritual about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. It's an encounter with the objective psyche. It's the encounter with the guiding self within. Yeah. And and it's just there every night. It is. <laughs> it, they really are miraculous. Sometimes it can be so really fun. Sometimes it can be a burden. Like, You're like, oh, gosh, <laughs> that dumb dream. What the heck was happening? I really like that thought, though, of it being spiritual in the sense I've this is, you know, it's winter. I live in Seattle. It's the end of this quarter. It's been very tough. And I've found myself like I was doing morning pages. If you guys have ever heard of morning pages in the artist way, I was doing that. And so I stopped dream logging and then I kind of stopped doing my morning pages and I wasn't dream logging or doing morning pages. And I was like, ah, no, I did it for like a week. And I noticed just like, uh, I noticed something different in me. And I was like, I think I need to take care of myself by listening to my dreams. Like I, I, I sense this thing of like listening to my dreams was really like a very connective thing that I was doing and lose like realizing losing it and not doing the morning pages either, which often were about my dreams. It was it, it, that like, I, I, I realized what, a, what a practice, a spiritual practice it had become for me. And then as it, I went back to it, I was like that next night, I was like really like dream maker. I, I, I need this. Like I, I will tend to it if you give it to me. And to then I got a dream, which maybe is the dream that I'll share with you guys that felt like it, it, it was like a breath. I was like, Oh, like I'm, I'm in communication with this other thing. Like, Oh, you're with me in it. Like whatever this universal piece is. Um, it felt it like felt it, the, yeah, the, the living love. companion. Yeah, no, yeah. totally. Um, Okay, I think we should end this as there's this meeting time running out, and I'm just going to email you all another link. Um, okay, and we'll get right back on if that's on. We'll fine. see you on the other side. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, well, welcome back, Lisa. Too. <laughs> where should we? Where, where where did we leave off? We were just talking about dreams, and I wonder if <laughs> just about if next it might be fun to like work with maybe one of my dreams, one of Scott's dreams, and just kind of see, that might be fun to explore if you guys were interested. Sure. Yeah, yeah, we're up yeah, for that. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I wrote, just get right into it? Yeah, I wrote down some notes about this dream. So I'll just say I uh, I started dream logging and was first doing them handwritten and hated it. It was just mm. like, I hate writing, and I got really grumpy. So I started doing audio voices. And so that's really been helpful for me. So I just wake up and I just oh, right. audio record my dream. 
Um, so I went back today and listened to this one that came like two days ago and just wrote down some notes um, of what stood out. Um, so there's kind of two parts to the dream. Um, the first part began and I was like, I felt both above and within. I, I, I said this in my log. I was looking at a Zoom screen and seeing my entire extended family on the Zoom screen. So I specifically remember seeing a cousin. I saw my grandma and my sister was there. And my sister's 10 years older than me. And she was kind of leading the Zoom screen, um, very much taking like a charismatic stance in the Zoom. And I, I'm in school and I'm on a lot of Zooms and I feel like I've recently been realizing the weight of how stressful a Zoom is. And uh, one thing that I've been working on is being able to like not participate and say like, that's okay. And so in this Zoom, in this, this scenario, my sister is like talking is like, what's up everybody? And asks a question. And then there's just this big silence. And I remember that being a very powerful thing where I was like, I'm not going to say anything. Like I am not going to. And I just let the silence roll. And it was very awkward. Um, but I was like, this is, I'm not going to do that. And, uh, then that was kind of that dream fizzled out. Um, I remember noting that it felt easier to do the silence thing with my family than it has been at school in this dream. Um, so then I fizzled into this other dream where I feel like, I feel like they, they, they connect in my mind where Scott comes over to my house and we're talking and I don't remember we're talking out, but I go downstairs and I go to the bathroom and I remember not being gone long and I come back up and Scott's gone and he's calling me on the phone and I'm like, where are you? Like, where did you go? And he's like, oh, I had to go. I'll, I'll be back soon. Are you annoyed? And I was like, well, I'm medium annoyed. And I remember saying this, like, I'm medium annoyed. You could have just told me where you were going. And I wanted to talk to you about things. And so I then go and I'm going to a country club. And I feel like this is connected because my grandma, it like reminded me of my grandma being at a country club. My grandma was in that Zoom. And one of my childhood best friends is there riding bikes, um, a high school best friend. And they're like, are you going to go in? And I was like, no, I got to go. I got to go talk to my friend Scott. And so I like pass on the country club and pass on my friends with the bikes. And then I'm going and I'm walking. And then all of a sudden I go into what seems like an underground car garage and my friend Shelby, who is a now a licensed therapist, is there and she's guiding me and she's walking me around and essentially has like orientation feelings like this is what's going to happen. You are going to get assigned someone who is kind of like a therapist that checks in and makes sure you're doing your routines right. And I remember one of the things being that I had to like read the newspaper every day if I wanted to be a therapist and they're going to check in that I do these things um, and, oh, yes, okay, the last thing, the last thing is all, once I went into that garage, and honestly, a little bit before, my eyes were so tired. Oh, right. Like, I felt incredibly exhausted, and, like, the whole, part of the whole energy of everything that was happening was, I was like, am I gonna keep my eyes open? Like, I'm very, they feel really heavy, um, and then I woke up and that's the dream. <laughs> <laughs> so just a little to work off there. <laughs> Newspapers. 
Let me let me just start by saying, I mean, you mentioned this somewhat, but just tell me about the feelings in the different parts in the dream. Um, yeah, so the first one, the first part in that Zoom, it felt like I was very much, this is something, it felt like I was watching myself and seeing myself react. Um, I was very aware of my sister and what she was doing. And I, th- I think that in a way I was, well, I don't know if this is feelings, but I, I was like my, I think I was my sister and I also was myself pulled back, um, kind of watching and deciding. It felt like very, the feelings felt above, um, above and within. I think I said that, hmm. um, but, but felt like kind of not strong either way, almost detached. Um, I would say, um, the, the, the whole thing with Scott coming and leaving, probably disappointed, um, was the, the biggest feeling, uh, and just like, yeah, I think that's probably it and allowing, I, so I felt mildly agitated and he asked, and I remember it being powerful that I said I was, um, like letting that be seen. Um, I like let myself. And then the the last part with the going underground, I think stress. <laughs> I think like this this person who's telling me that I'm going to have a therapist that is not a therapist. There's someone that's just going to check in that I'm doing things. Um, felt really stressful, and it feels relatively reflective of like I'm heading into becoming a therapist. And there's all these fears of like what what do I need to do? Am I how do I become the right person to like all of us? You know, like a lot of those things um, felt present. Um, so very fearful, um, and tired, like weary, maybe. Mm-hmm. And and can I just ask, I mean, I have a, a bunch of questions, but, but one of the questions is you talked about doing the silence thing. Mm-hmm. And, and so tell me more about that. Are you usually very talkative and it's almost hard to hold back? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I am in a cohort and there's like a hundred of us and, I tend to be someone, I, I've always been this way in a classroom, like I'm a verbal processor and I like to engage. Um, so I've been engaging a lot and I, I I think in a lot of ways I've also like come out, I'm, so I'm non-binary and I'm queer and I'm in this program and there's a lot of me that's, I think came in wanting to have a strong presence and like almost, I've been realizing putting up maybe some false self things in order to be seen or in order to understand. And so, um, in the past like three weeks, I've, I've really started to observe like this part of myself that, that jumps ahead and jumps in. And so I've been kind of trying to practice. And this is like the phrase that many adults, including my therapist has said is like this, think of it as a kindness to yourself to not engage, like to sit back and allow there to be the pause, um, which, I, I'm starting to see how it is, but it, it, it involves generally a lot of anxi- anxiety, like to sit back and not to be right involved. There's a lot of like lost control, um, mm. I would say. So being with the silence is a way of dropping down and um, sitting maybe with some discomfort and it, it feels more comfortable to sort of jump in. And what's your sister like? Um, my sister is, so she's 10 years older than me. She's like, uh, how would I describe my sister? Very charismatic, kind of on top of everything. Um, 
very, very like outgoing and like takes charge and in control. Um, so, so that might be, I mean, you said you're both your sister and yourself. And so that might be an image of a kind of shadow, a shadow. These are kind of two different sides of the coin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The sort of uh, very charismatic and take charge, which you can be too. Um, and, and you're finding this other stance of just, of just being without having to um, sort of tolerating just being with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of like fusion and I, I have a tendency to kind of fuse into a situation, whether that's another person or maybe a whole group. Um, and like even this detached notion of like, I felt unfused, like I was remaining outside almost. Yeah. My other thought about not speaking up, you know, with, whether it's in class or in a family zoom meeting is that it can be a compliant thing to speak up. So the professor asks a question and you're like, you know, cause it's almost like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to answer the question sort of, I'm going to, I'm yeah. going to be accommodating. I'm going to be, I'm, or, or someone in the zoom call says, Hey, come on, let's talk. And, you know, to, to ha- take care of someone else's anxiety, we say something mm-hmm. because we feel badly maybe that there's uh silence and, yeah. and we can sense the other person's discomfort and we feel like we have to fix that. So the first two scenes in the dream seem related to me in that um, you allow yourself to to be maybe more authentic and not just address yourself to someone else's needs or expectations. So you, you know, you let him know that you're irritated that he left. You you don't meet the demand to talk. Yeah. No, I th- yeah. I, I hear that and it feels that way. I, both of those kind of had that that feeling of like this feels like almost almost like the dream is providing some some practice, some practice for what I'm wanting to be able to do in my waking life. If that makes sense. Or or also like some catharsis or release. Like maybe you're wanting to tell me you're annoyed with me. <laughs> you're not doing it enough. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but maybe. That can be pretty annoying. Well, if you just if you really did just leave randomly, I would I've be done annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it's true. But I think I've been like, hey, yeah. One thing that I might be curious about, in addition to the work that Lisa did, is that the whole process of discharging versus containing is an important dynamic around mm-hmm. feeling compelled to self-express or particularly being compelled to speak. Hmm. So one of the things that I was imagining as you were talking is that in certain environments, your psyche, something in the unconscious begins to rumble and starts intensifying inside of you. And you may be trying to get ahead of it by just discharging the steam so it doesn't break through. Mm. Oh, yeah. So by restraining it, which, by the way, is a common psychotherapy um, skill, you'll find yourself containing all kinds of feelings, helping your clients contain things and to reflect on them. By containing it 
and not venting the energy, you begin to feel that something is pushing its way up. Hmm. What's pushing its way up is probably not anxiety. The anxiety is the ego's ambivalence about what's going to be revealed. Mm. The thing that's revealed is almost always life-giving. Mm. <laughs> so, so good. I that, that seems to resonate with me as somebody that knows you. Like it, it does seem almost volcanic sometimes. Like he said the word rumbling, like yeah. something's rumbling up inside of you. And I can sort of see it as it's starting to happen. You know, sort of start with a look on your face, some fidgetiness. And, and it's like almost like, you will like you I, that that energy of like releasing it. You yeah, know, it will eventually release. Right, and I I mean, there's I I'm I'm struck by this imagery of when that happens. My 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 typical pattern I think is like you're saying, get up ahead of it. Like that that got me of like. There's just been a few instances where I'm like aware that something is going to be ambivalent. I see that that's happening, and so I I jump ahead with like a big passion or a big movement towards like I'm going to jump into it and and I'm kind of hearing this idea of well like maybe maybe the containing like contain the ambivalence allow it and what you're saying is if if it then is inside it can like build this pressure of almost like I'm thinking like a diamond then comes out like Uh, because the pressure is contained like it doesn't it doesn't have to not exist like I can still be there Hmm. um Hmm. but I mean I've I've noticed that this is a thing I like get out ahead I'm like assume and in in doing that I'm assuming a lot about what's gonna happen like there's a lot of of control, like fear mm-hmm, and control mm-hmm. happening there. Yeah. So the, the ego is getting up ahead of what wants to come through from the unconscious. Mm. Dang. And mm. also trying to depotentiate it by overexpressing. So the sister is the shadow or maybe not even a shadow, but a dimension of yourself that can be charismatic and leadering in the environment. And everybody might appreciate that. What I like, though, is when you decide you're going to contain, your entire psyche complies Mm. that no one else talks. Mm. So when you announce this is going to be a containing moment, all the inner figures are supporting you in that. Wow. That feels like really emotional, like hearing that. Mm. Mm That's our, our most recent episode that we recorded on Thursday was um, your multiple voices. What did we call it? The other within the other within mm-hmm. and talking about the multiplicity of our inner self, you know, and it's like, it's an interesting thing to think of managing all those inner selves. But what he's saying is they, could be together. they, they all fall in line. Like you're Maybe in charge. You like we're quiet, you know, contain. Mm. What, what are there any images around the, feelings that are coming up any imaginings yeah you know i have like a i'm 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 working towards writing a paper that's like a theological anthropology and uh i think it's going to center around this imagery of dance and like kind of looking at a christian trinitarian approach to dance but also like this idea of interconnectedness and it's just an interesting thought to imagine as like you know, Scott's what you're saying. We're talking about multiple selves and these inner voices. And 
I've been struggling with this idea of I feel like I'm like, I have so many dissonances, voices that are yelling back at each other and they're not in touch. Like, how am I ever supposed to make sense of all these voices that don't seem to be in harmony? And there's there's something there of it noting like well, maybe they actually are working mm-hmm. together maybe mm-hmm. they are in dance like they're in flow um that's happening in, internally as well um so there's kind of this imagery of i like i i have this i draw a lot of this this imagery of this kind of interconnected woven dance and i'm mm-hmm. i'm imagining that with these these voices currently mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sometimes they polarize and then sometimes they're really with us, particularly when the goal is rising from the self. The self, that spiritual center in us, when the self comes forward and begins to take hold of the system, it in, it always has a structural and organizing effect on everything. Mm. So what I would imagine is, the angel of silence descended in the psyche. Mm. And because it came from that kind of primordial place, all beings paused. Mm. It was it was actually kind of a transcendental mm. moment. And it organized everything into this listening place. Mm-hmm. Mm. Dang, it does sound so mystical and spiritual in the best way, which I think as we're listening it highlights for me that these things require a lot of paying attention, you know, deep paying attention to what's happening. Right. And it's like, I've, I've appreciated that's the part part we've paused at, you know, like where do we, where, where did we pause? And like, wow, I, I think I moved past that piece. Like, Mm. I think hearing you say that Joseph, I mean, it clearly hit me in an emotional level, like, Mm -hmm. like that, it helped me connect with what I was doing there, you know? Mm-hmm. 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 That's yeah. super sweet. The second half of the dream, I think, is also really uh, significant, although I don't know it's exactly related. But there's there's a validation that your fieriness is takes you into the underworld. Mm. You know, we're in this culture, and particularly... You know, working in a church culture, which is, you know, filled with, you know, niceosity. Yeah. You know, and this incredible pressure to not express anything that's kind of chafing. But in the dream world, you're able to actually evidence your frustration and your anger. And you're harnessing it to reconnect with someone, Mm. someone that you care about. So there's a lesson in the dream that passion and a little hot-headedness is an essential ingredient in being related to someone. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And this goes back to your podcast name, No Small Thing. When we're raised in environments that are very difficult for us, we cope by convincing ourselves that it doesn't matter. Yeah. And in the dream, you let it matter. It's no small thing that you just weren't there when I came up. Yeah, it matters. Dang. It mattered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm and if I have to ride my bike through all these internal environments to find you to reconnect, and even if I'm going to deliver some fire there, mm. 
I'm going to make that happen. Mm. That's really beautiful. And and one of the things we said in this conversation about the other within, the whole point was if you can invite these multiple selves and attend to them, you'll be able to do that with others. And it strikes me, at least from my own experience, that elders, whether they're parents and grandparents or people in the church, uh, minimized feelings, you know, mm-hmm. for both of us mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And obviously that was happening internally for them too. And if you can make space for these characters and these feelings, you'll be able to do that better with other with people other too. People. Yeah. Absolutely. It builds up capacity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. I also wow. think in the end of the second part, you've been intro- you've been transformed into the archetype of the acolyte. Mm. Mm. What does that mean? The acolyte is the beginner. Mm. The disciple. In the ancient temples, you know, when you started out your process, um, you were often sweeping the courtyard and mm. drawing the water and you're scrubbing the steps of the temple. And slowly, it's kind of like the karate kid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> wax on, wax off. <laughs> exactly. Paint the fence, yeah. But mm-hmm. subtly, you're internalizing certain disciplines, certain patterns are being introduced even though we don't always know exactly where that's going to go. Mm. And so when you're guided into the underworld and you have a guide, which Jung calls a psychopomp, a guide, a guider of souls. Mm. And what she basically says is you've got some assignments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're, you, we expect you to comply with whatever it is. And we down here in the below are watching. Mm. This stuff is so exciting to me. I love this. <laughs> yeah, and, and I wonder if the assignment to read the newspaper every day, I mean, it's just it's just a daily thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I wonder if it even refers to your practice of morning pages or mm-hmm. or dream logging. Mm-hmm. That what's the news today? Yeah. And you have to read it every single day. And it just it, there's something very quotidian about the newspaper. It's yeah. just it's just so. It's just there every morning. I I um I think I love this too about the idea of the assignment because it, it it feels sort of autonomous. Like there's no outside force. It's yourself. Mm-hmm. It's yourself. Exactly. Giving the, the no. Assignment. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and it's kind of what I was doing. Like this was the start of me saying. I I told myself my choice is. I wake up and I can do a dream log or I can do morning pages. And if I don't have a dream, I have to do morning pages essentially. But this was the first day that I was doing Mm -hmm. that. Like Mm -hmm. that's fascinating. It's some reflection of like you've given, this is your, your newspaper. Like what's going on with yourself? Check your news. Exactly. (laughs) Check your news. Woo. That's really interesting. (laughs) Dang, dang. If, If we want to rest into another archetypal level, Shelby is functioning like Persephone. Mm. Hmm. What what does that mean? <laughs> well, Persephone was the daughter of Demeter and Zeus, and she was this young, happy, beautiful girl who forever followed her mother Demeter, who was the goddess of summer and fruitfulness and fertility. And so Demeter would move throughout the world and bless the forests and life. And Dem- and Persephone would pick flowers in her trail and in a sense would have forever been a girl. Her father Zeus from far away colludes with his brother Hades, who is the lord of the underworld, to abduct Persephone hmm. and force her 
to marry, and in that, forcing her to become the queen of the underworld. Mm -hmm. She's distraught being so violently separated from her mother, and she feels cautious about how she's going to engage, but she's offered a pomegranate to eat, and intuitive, she, intuitively, she only eats a few grains of it. Her mother Demeter is so bereft that the world begins to die. Mm-hmm. Her mourning blights everything on the earth. Mm-hmm. And so Zeus allows a deal to be made. Half of the year, Persephone will be up with her mother, which corresponds to spring and summer. And then half of the year, she will be down and be the queen of the underworld. Mm-hmm and live there in fall and winter. Hmm. The myth has been interpreted in a lot of ways as a, as a terrifying encounter for Persephone, but there's another view of it, that it was a forced maturation, because left under the control of the great mother, she would have never discovered her own queenliness. Hmm. And so Shelby comes and introduces you to the underworld, you're pretty exhausted. Yeah. (laughs) But I think the reason you're exhausted is you're so accustomed to being on fire that you mistake being, you mistake relief for exhaustion. Mm. Oh, my goodness. You know... This is really good. You guys must have so much fun (laughs) talking about these things. You know, I was... This image is something that has come to my mind recently because I've been thinking about... I I show up at places and I... What my... I'm realizing this is... This is what I do. I I see a big fire and I say, I'm going to put on four layers of armor and go into the fire. And I'm like, that's what I do. And the other day I was like, what if I wear a light sweater and sit by the fire? Like, what if that's what I do instead of get on the armor and go into the fire? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. I have a different Mm -hmm. choice than to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. As you're saying that, I'm like, whoa. (laughs) I'm I'm curious about um, the, the country club. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And I'm I'm wondering um if I recall correctly your your grandmother is there at the country club? You know, or she's I don't know if she was there. It just to, kind okay. of evokes that imagery. The only time I go to a country club is like with my my extended family and my okay. it's my grandparents. And it okay. I had like a springtime we're outside, you know, Easter's coming. I wonder if that's part of the energy like it Demeter. What was that? Demeter. Yeah. Your grandmother is like Demeter at the country club. I don't know who that is. That, that's, the, that's in the mythology, the Greek story he mm-hmm. was just talking about. Oh, oh, yeah. is that the, that was, the mother? That was the mother goddess yeah. who's connected to spring and beauty yeah. and graciousness. Yeah. Yeah, but that's really interesting. you ride right by it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I like, I'm like, I, I'm going to walk in and I say no and I leave. Right. Wow. Right. Yeah. You're not going to be the child of the great mother. Which, which in other realms of my like object relations work, I'm kind of working around this in a lot of ways of mm-hmm. like. Uh, so the dream is medicinal because it allows you to experience yourself in a way that you are not in your waking life. Yeah. Yeah. So the medicine is, oh, this is what it's like to say no to the great mother. Mm-hmm. That's what, that's that moment. <laughs> I know what that feels like. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't going to bring this dream and it, cause it was, I had a really foggy dream last night, but I, I dreamed that I actually shot my mom three times. 
like and that mm-hmm. that feels like a, a very interesting movement beyond this like mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. A very a violent refusal there. Mm-hmm. It's the heroic journey of slaying the dragon, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's not. It's, it, we can only tolerate this if we think about it purely symbolically. Right. No. Exactly. <laughs> but your mother represents every regressive impulse, every part of you that wants to go back to being. It wants young. to remain in the world of childhood. Yeah. And the hero and the heroine has to slay all of those temptations to go backwards. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you did that is very promising. That's a kind of medicine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, oh, that's what it feels like. I can do this. Yeah. I can do this. Who was the childhood friend that you were riding bikes with? Um, Yeah. You know, it was my close friend, more like a high school friend, actually. Her name was Haley, Um, Mm -hmm. which is fascinating because I feel like I made a recent connection between a situation Scott and I were having where I was, there was a similar transference with the way I was handling something with him and Haley. So that felt connected to me too. Like mm-hmm. this, this substitute friend that like, or friend that came in, they seem to kind of represent similar things. I mean, if you had to kind of give me the essence of Haley in like two or three sentences, what would you say? Oh, fascinating question. Um, uh, Haley, very excitable, loyal, uh, fun, go with the flow. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So maybe an image of how you have been. Hmm. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, should, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say yeah, totally on your behalf, but that's yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's that kind of persona, if you will, that you're leaving behind as you go into the underground. In those words I just said, that's fascinating. I want to see some like artistic renderings of this dream now. Like you need to paint mm-hmm. Shelby as Persephone. I know that's really interesting. <laughs> that's super interesting. Oh man. I hope Haley and Shelby listen to this. <laughs> They'll be like, what? I don't know about your mom. Your mom might be a little trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dang. But I mean, that's, that's the burden of being a parent. You know, you have to, I, I have a 16 and 14 year old, you know, you have to assume that that archetypal role. That's the, that's the role you play. You'll never truly be seen as yourself. Exactly. The, yeah. cause the archetype of the great mother or the great father, we carry that for our children, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that archetype has two poles. There's the positive mother and the negative mother. Mm-hmm. And there's the, the positive father and the negative father. Yeah. And we'll, we'll have both projected on us at various times. And part of what we do as parents, because we are carrying this huge archetypal burden, is we help to humanize the archetype through these daily interactions with our children, where, where we kind of uh, lower the voltage down. <laughs> we make it uh, something that you can relate to. And yeah. so hopefully our kids grow up then to have a, a, a sort of a, a good enough internalized sense of, of that potential, that archetypal potential. That sounds like some good material for a book, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for mentioning yeah. that. Yeah, I have, a, I have a, a book coming out at the end of May. It's called Motherhood Facing and Finding Yourself. And, mm. you know, it, it's, I have two kids too. I have, uh, I have a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old. Wow. So I'm just, I'm just right same. ahead of you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, what a and season. I, 
<laughs> uh, absolutely. So I w- I've been I was writing the book the whole time I was in training, and I was mm. also mothering. Mm. Yeah. And I was really struck by how it's such an opportunity to get to know yourself psychologically. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the things I noticed, and I'm, I'm sure you can probably relate to this, is you really learn um, the dark aspects of your personality. Oh. You really come into contact. You know, the novelist Faye Weldon said, um, the best thing about not having children is that you can go on believing that you're a good person. And yeah. boy, that is true. You know, you really meet your inner monster yeah. when you have kids because you can get so enraged at them. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the things I wanted to explore in the book mm. is what do we learn about ourselves as mm. a result of mothering? So it's it's really about how being a parent helps us get to know ourselves better mm-hmm. and gets us further down the road of this thing that Jung called individuation. Mm. The the person that founded Mace's school wrote a book called How Children Raise Parents. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. That's great. And yeah, and yeah it's, I, my brother has, I think, an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old. And um, he said, oh, I'm going to, the other day, just casually, I had this thought when I was talking to him. He said, oh, I'm going to really miss this time or this season. And I said, oh, you know, what you'll also miss is the person you are with this nine-year-old. Because mm. now I'm a different person around my 16, 14-year-old. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was easier to be, like, whimsical and playful. And now... Yeah. Uh, I, like I, I think we're all angry teenagers in our house right now. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's that's really beautifully put. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There there is a way that being with children at that in those younger years invites us to mm-hmm. revisit mm-hmm. maybe our own child self mm-hmm. and and to be whimsical and and playful and there's a little bit of room for magic and yeah and that gets left behind. The children's books get packed away. And, yeah so sad yeah (laughs) but yeah and then and then the trick is i think probably not not resenting your kids from for turning you into this monster because it's not their fault but Mm -hmm. yeah it's probably sometimes i'm like seeing this stuff that's coming out from me and i'm like oh it's their fault if it you know it's not it's Mm -hmm. obviously not their fault but (laughs) well right because if you blame it on them then you're really projecting your shadow onto them rather than owning it yourself and thinking oh look that's that's mine, and I didn't know I had that, but mm-hmm. there you go. Mm-hmm. Do we do we need to do one more round of email? <laughs> I know I think so. We so we don't. I don't want to cut this <laughs> off abruptly. <laughs> do you guys mind if we end it one more time and send you? Sure. Yeah. You sure. guys are so like nice, to, and I'd like you. to hear more about the archetype of the father as it has claimed you and changed you. Oh goodness, I'd love to talk That'll about be that. So cool. <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll be right back. We'll be right back, you guys. <laughs> I'll do it right now. <laughs> kind of towards a wind down, but I'm super intrigued by what you just ended on Joseph about Scott and the archetype of the father. Yeah. It was like a cliffhanger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's go for it. Ooh. Yeah. 
Is there, is there a way into it? Like the <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. So most most pair bondings happen through eros, mm. and most men, even if they've been um, somewhat restrained, when they fall in love, the archetype of the lover is evoked in them, mm. and and that that begins the journey for a man. He's introduced to his lover internally and externally. And so you have that dance with your partner for a certain amount of time. But then as soon as you discover that she's pregnant and over those nine months, as the baby is growing, there is a kind of reshaping of a man's entire internal terrain in ways that nothing could have prepared him for wow. or whatever book that you read you thought you knew it was going to happen. Yeah. Probably read many. So much more <laughs> than that. Yeah. So I'm wondering what that was like for you hmm. to go from being the lover to having a child. Wow. Wow. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is like the exact types of things we're like talking about. I haven't really thought about it that much. I mean, you should know, I think it's pertinent information to my wife and I met senior year of, you know, we met my freshman year of college. Um, but we got engaged my junior year of college and married mm. senior year of college. So we dated for like three months before we got engaged yeah. and then, st- well, so, so started dating in April, got married in December. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> got married in 2001 and had our son in 2004. So yeah, when you say that Eros thing, it feels very real, but also short lived, you know? Yeah. And there's a grief in yeah. that. Yeah. That women, when they become pregnant and the archetype of the mother begins to descend into them, uh, for many women, it's euphoric. Mm. And there's this uh, incredible sense of divinity, mm. even about what's happening. Men <laughs> often feel that they have been deprioritized massively. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that the role of the lover is, you know, they're not sure where that's going to show up again. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting as you say that. I mean, we're preparing as you guys, you know, we've all been in quarantine. So uh, it's sort of a double whammy lately because I think for the last, you know, whatever, as long as we've had kids, my wife and I get away quite a bit throughout the year. Um, But in quarantine, we haven't. And it's just been Mm. a year of just being with our kids nonstop in our house. (laughs) Um, So... (laughs) <laughs> we're going on a little trip uh, this on Monday and um, our in-laws, my in-laws are vaccinated. So they're going to have our kids for a few days. So we'll be the first time. So I think there's already a sense of like anticipation for like being away together. Um, but yeah, I mean, getting back in touch with that younger person, I think that explains a lot. I, I definitely think there was a sense of deprioritizing and I'm, I'm absolutely certain my wife would, relate to this idea of divinity and euphoria and loves being a mom and loved being a mom and loved being pregnant and loved giving birth. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, that's interesting. There's, there's even an interesting image that comes to my mind, which seemed so profound at the time. You know how it is. It's like by, by the time your second child comes along, it's not as, as significant. I'm sure that the more, the more kids you have, it even gets less and less, but um, I just remember those first few months, I, f- I didn't feel comfortable with Marissa, my wife, um, breastfeeding by herself. Or, I mean, like she could. 
I felt guilty. <clears throat> I felt guilty. Is why it wasn't like, oh, I need to monitor it or something. That sounds weird. Um, but, I, but, <laughs> but I, but I would wake up with her and I would go lay on the floor while she did that and sort of just keep a vigil of, of some kind. But I don't know what was going on there. It just felt like, well, I want to be part of this too. And, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. That, th- those are some interesting, I've, I haven't given that that much thought, but um, I definitely relate to the imagery and the things that seem to happen for men. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I think what you were saying earlier about feeling so ferocious with your teenage children is that often men start in the lover position and then once the children are born, then the next stage is often the magician emerges. Mm. And then, because you are magical and they're magical and everything you introduce them to feels like magic to yes, them. Yes. And you get into this incredible trickstery, delightful yes. kind of place, which makes you feel both powerful and uh, squealingly yeah. excited yeah. about what you can introduce them to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's, all, become, there's like a, yeah. a lament or a mourning you know, that, that, that happens. Um, yeah. Gosh, it's, it, I was saying that to my son. I, I mean, I had the most hectic morning, I think, as we <laughs> may yeah. explain to you, it's like just driving my kids around, but you know, my, my son's rounding the corner on his junior year and he just keeps saying these things of like, I only have a year left. He'll be like, this is my last Easter. This is my last, this yeah. and we're like, geez, that yeah. really. And I just said to Jack this morning, I was like, I think one of the things with parenting is you're always, playing catch up like mm-hmm. it's like all of a sudden your kid is 16 and you're like what right like, how wait. did that happen yeah and you're catching up to yourself mm-hmm. and the changes mm-hmm. that happened mm-hmm. uh, um and you're just like wait what just happened um yeah, yeah and, and then there's this next tremendous threshold to cross which is when they leave home mm-hmm. and what kind of psychological work are we presented with at that stage mm-hmm. boy oh boy Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'd like to just circle back to where I think you are now, Mm -hmm. which is the magician is no no longer useful with the children, Mm. but what they're calling forth from you is the third archetype, which is the warrior. Ooh, dang. Explain that. As your kids, (laughs) yeah. Well, when you think about warrior cultures, if you were suddenly being transformed into a Spartan, Mm. you find yourself looking at your kids wanting them to be good soldiers mm. and you want to be the general. Right. And, and they're even asking for that huh. from you. Wow. That they're asking you to create this order mm. around you and to, to initiate them. So even when your child says this, this is all going to end, like I'm coming to the end of my old life mm. underneath that, he's saying, initiate me. Mm. Huh. Wow. Make me ready for all of this to go mm. away. Initiate me. That's a big thought. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I haven't given that much thought and that, that seem it almost seems like a defense for me sometimes to back off. Like, uh, instead of stepping up sometimes, um, and, and being sort of overwhelmed by all the feelings that are arising. And so sometimes it's almost like this, this mantra in my head of like, do no harm. I'm like, well, I have a mm-hmm. lot of feelings and emotions and thoughts and, I, I find myself saying this to my family, so it's strange that you're doing this. We were driving up to the mountains recently, and I and I said something, and everybody, all three, like my wife, son, and daughter, always sort of shut me down and go, no, 
And I, and I go, well, what is my role anyways? Yeah. I said that. I was like, what am mm-hmm. I supposed to do? Like, what does a dad do? Cause I didn't want to do any harm. I wasn't, I wasn't sensing like I needed to like win this fight or this argument or like put my foot down or assert myself. But I really was like, what is my role? I kept saying that. I was like, I don't mm-hmm. know what my role is anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. There is this disorientation cause the role is shifting. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that the ferocity, which is occasionally exploding through you, mm-hmm. is demanding that you befriend it. Mm. Mm. Oof. So that just like Macy, you're both in a parallel process where being nice is strangling you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Dang, dang. Yeah. So if we were to set aside being nice, and become more interested in being effective mm. and accomplishing the mission. Dang. Dang. That's an interesting word for you as a dad. Yeah, it's a good it's a good word. I, I think this last year, <laughs> this is an interesting thing to play with because in quarantine, I think I got, again, catching up, catching up to this information. Uh, all of a sudden, I started noticing and hearing the, the repetition of words and comments from all three of my family members of like me being moody, which I've, I've never really been a moody person. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's like, oh, you're, you're moody, you know? And I was like, I am? And not in the sense of like blurting or erupting, but just I'm sort of going around with this low-grade moodiness in my house in quarantine, I think. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of it is because it's just this constant managing and suppressing of like instincts. I'm just like, yes. I feel like I should say this or do this, but I'm not because I've been told I can't or shouldn't. And so I just walk around being grumpy. <laughs> and so the mother is used to being in charge of the children mm-hmm. as it is. And right around late puberty, the father needs to assert. Yeah. And the mother may contend with that because she's not ready to lay down her role per right. se. But it's time for you to become the warrior, which means <laughs> you've got to you've got to really address the fact that he lost his keys. Right. You've got to really you've got to set <laughs> expectations yeah. with them. So the goal of the warrior is to maintain a high level of interpersonal warmth and to advocate for very high maturity expectations. Jeez. Oh, gosh. Well, both. This is really good. Uh, you guys are good. <laughs> I hope we get to keep talking to you guys after this episode. Mm-hmm. Someday, but <laughs> It's really interesting, too, because I'm, I don't have a very high level of maturity from a standard for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I do in the sense of, like, I'm a kind reliable, dependable person in that sense. But, um, we, you know, we often talk about, I'm not very good at being on time, True. but, um, this is just a crazy thought. Cause I got really wrapped up into these, uh, videos last night before bed of this artist. I love his name is Tom Sachs and he has a studio in New York and I guess responsibility in quotes have always felt really cheesy to me or something. And he had this set of, um, videos, that were like about a minute long that sort of set the standards for his art studio. And so it's like, you're always on time. You always clean up your station. You always put your things away. You always communicate. It was just, it was just this phrase too. I understand. He's like a one minute video on that. It's like, if you, if you, if somebody's given you a request or a directive, say you understand. And then if you don't say you don't understand, but I was like, somehow in the videos, I was like, he was making, 
being responsible seem cool to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was like, I could use this in my life. Like, yeah, I should be on time. I should clean up my workstation. You know, well, it's very, it's very similar to what the image that Mace had in the dream about Shelby giving her a task. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you have to undergo the discipline. Yeah. You know, Jim Hollis has this wonderful thing that I just love. He says, we all have an appointment with ourselves, but most of us don't show up for it. Mm. Mm. Miss the appointment. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if we're if we're not careful with our expectations of ourselves, we will miss that appointment. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, that's really good. So it seems almost simultaneous that there is something in me that feels almost inadequate in terms of holding that high standard. Um, so it, it does seem like an invitation or an assignment for both of us, mm-hmm. not you, mm-hmm. but like me and no, no, I feel like, yeah, that is a fascinating yeah. thing to consider bringing into the mix. Mm-hmm. And the maturity standard is age appropriate. Yeah. yeah. At 16, right. it's reasonable to not lose your keys Yeah, or for there to be some consequence, a reasonable consequence, yeah. like, you know, you're going to have to go with me to get the new keys made or, you mm-hmm. know, something or other, but there has to be some response to it and a bit of wisdom teaching about, you know, that this can't happen again. Right. That's good. This is interesting. <laughs> I, really I feel like there's a part of me, like the, the person that wants to, cause I think I'll probably, I'm, I'm queer, I'm non-binary and I'm in this field of psychology and love Jung, but wonder a lot about these archetypes, which oh, male, female. feel very binary and, and like, also seeming like a fascinating piece contributing to like masculinity expectations and expectations that are on particular bodies. Um, and this, this is, this is interesting. It's bringing up a lot, but I, I, I notice a part of me that's also wondering how much like particular expectations are placed on mothers and then fathers and what, what the implications of that are. Well, and, and what, what part of that is sort of social and, mm-hmm. and therefore we could choose to have a different response to it and what part of it is more innate. And that is a very big conversation. Right. And no, I'm. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, you know, Jung did say life proceeds in pairs of opposites. And there's a way that I think that the psyche latches on to male and female because it is a very fundamental opposite in our existence that we all need to have a handle on. Otherwise the human race wouldn't uh, continue. Yeah. But um, but but certainly he also said that we're all an amalgam of both masculine and feminine traits. Yeah. 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 And that it's important to meet your other mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. other energy. And it seems like it may be the case that's in a in a relationship, the, the woman might find themselves relating to the male archetype. No, exactly you know? what I'm saying. So it's like that where's there's like I, I am enjoying this and wanting to name like there where's room for like the mother to be the warrior. Hmm. Oh, yeah. well, I was going to say actually that you guys, that was a great conversation about fatherhood. And yet somehow the women, the women in it just got to be euphoric and divine. Uh, yeah. And that has not been my experience of motherhood at all. Huh. Huh. I and, remember you talking um, about being pregnant and it was <laughs> euphoric for you. You loved no, it. No, it absolutely. You're totally yeah. remembering that wrong. I was incredibly anxious the entire time. But, oh, but listen, gosh. Mm. Joseph, what I, what I, and you didn't know me when I was pregnant. I remember you talking about it, how how much you loved it and even thought about having a third child. Oh, I I loved having small children. Being pregnant was not fun. Uh, But, but in any case, what what I want to say though, is that of course I loved it. 
Of mm-hmm. course I did. I mean, being a parent is deeply meaningful, but, and, you know, and this is what my book is about. There are all these stages that we go through and we go through continually mm. of losing something and having to sit mm. with something dark and mm. then maybe coming back out of it and claiming something new. And yeah. so Mace, I think your point, you know, yes, of course there's room for the mother to be the warrior. You know, Lord knows I've spent lots of time in that place. Yeah. And, and, you know, the mother has to lay down the law, too, and to find her fierceness to protect herself, to protect her kids. The mother has to learn how to carry her own authority and aggression. So, I mean, it, it, hmm. I'm sure it looks a little different between mothers and fathers, but it, it, it is not a static state. Being hmm. a mother, it's one of constant growth and change. Mm-hmm. And archetypes, archetypes are limited, yeah. Human beings are infinitely more complicated yeah. than archetypes. So we really can talk about the archetype of the male warrior and it is fairly flattened and which is why mythology and fairy tales are fairly brief by the way. Yeah. You don't get you don't get a thousand pages of backstory and right. all the ambivalences of being human that they're talking about these kind of universal principles. Yeah. That of course a woman can experience an archetypal awakening of the warrior. Yeah, The reason I'm saying that for you, Scott, is that it sounded like a ferocity is rising up in mm, you that mm. you don't feel is permitted mm, right. in mm. the home and in, permitted in your internal home. And it makes you feel locked up mm-hmm. because mm. you're expending so much energy suppressing the ground inside of you that's rumbling mm. and trying to bring forward this Achilles inside of you. Mm. Mm. And when it f- emerges, you might not be familiar with those impulses. You may deliver them inelegantly, mm. but the way that those forces become masterful is you welcome them. Oh boy. Oh boy. That's a lot to think about. <laughs> <laughs> a lot to sit with. But I like, I like, I mean, it, it is this, this magician trickster thing, uh, you know, my wife and I and my kids talk a lot about how I used to make all these videos of the family and, um, and that just sort of dissipated and everybody's sort of mystified by it. But I think it was because there was a season where it felt so magical mm-hmm. and yeah. now I'm making everybody kind of shrugs their shoulders. So I'm like, hey, I don't want to make them anymore. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, magic shows are not so interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I refer you to Robert Moore's work. Write that he's, down. Uh, he's a foremost Jungian analyst who wrote about these masculine archetypes in the universal way, but also how they influence the masculine psyche. That's uh, Macy, I, I, I do want to speak to the idea of being non-binary. And because I don't identify with that, I identify as a cis male I would love for you to unpack some of the some of the internal imagery mm. that's evoked when you say that word mm. non-binary. Because mm. mm. I'd love to I'd love to attune to what you, that means for you, and not yeah. make any assumptions. Yeah, um, that's a that's a beautiful invitation. Um, it honestly goes back to that dance. Uh, it's kind of a, a three person dance um within me i feel like often the expression of non-binary for me is um it is this imagery of in a lot of ways some some multiplicity being expressed um via gender um and and also like imagery of alien 
Um, I have a lot of alien imagery that speaks a lot to me. Um, also the idea of like having a third eye, um, speaks a lot to me and that feels related in sorts. Um, but I think, I think that the most powerful image is, um, is, is kind of this, this, this singular, singular triangle dance of three Mm. entities, but, but one. Um, uh, it involves kind of an embrace of of the, I think the masculine, the feminine. But I I I hear the polar opposites, but I also feel like there's there's this third this third piece that feels beyond or mm-hmm. other or between um, that just feels so at the core of myself that um, yeah something that sort of transcends the opposites. Jung. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was interested in alchemical series of images called the Rosarium, which he thought of as a psychological metaphor. And in these sequences of images, there's an archetypal um, king and queen. They disrobe, they interact, they hold hands in a fountain, they sink to the bottom of the fountain and copulate. And then after they copulate, they go through an extraordinary transformation and become the hermaphrodite. Hmm. They emerge as a singular being having the unified characteristics of both things, which then allows the self to incarnate. Mm. Wow. Mm. So there's three there's stages Powerful. of Jungian work. <laughs> yeah, the first stage mm. is, is shadow work, yeah. like reclaiming all the disowned stuff. The second is recognizing the binary, the masculine and feminine, which is just however you want to imagine the opposites. That's one paradigm. Right. And then that that binary has to somehow come together in such a way that neither is diminished Hmm. once they combine. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really beautiful. That is really beautiful. Hmm. Yeah. It's like night and day sun and moon, whatever, sky, Mm -hmm. you know, water, you know, fire and water. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I I think maybe part of, part of it is this idea, like when you're saying this in where I get a lot of this dance imagery, it's like you have night and day, these, these opposites. But then I recently wrote a paper on this kind of this idea of like, and then between the two things, their interaction and the space between them, a third thing is created where both of those things are there. And the third creative mm-hmm. act of those things interacting is is an entity as well mm-hmm. and that like as joseph was saying that's very much found that imagery is very much found in alchemy and it, it's related to his idea of the transcendent function that when we can hold the opposites together a third thing comes out of it that we could not have predicted mm-hmm. that, that arises as a result of the tension of those opposites mm. so when i think about the feeling of non-binary is is the image of the salutio. So when the king and the queen come together in the fountain and sink to the bottom, and as they copulate, the fountain boils. Hmm. And then they stay copulated, and they rest down into what looks like a sarcophagus. Hmm. And all the life leaves them. And in that moment, everything is fluid. Hmm. All the binaries have Whoa. been resolved, but, but the new thing hasn't constellated. Mm. everything is in a solution, a mercurial, ever-changing solution. Mm. But at some point, the self activates it and demands that you become a singular thing. Oh, boy. 
Ooh, and boy. not remain fluid forever. Hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> Maybe that's that's lots powerful. Yeah, I know it's lots <laughs> of things. It's powerful imagery, and I think there's this fascinating thing where I've I uh, I do I feel like I am kind of in in flux in fluid. I I would still say I'm in transition of sorts. Like I I'm, I would consider myself that. So that's something to just to rest in that imagery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we, yeah, go ahead, Joseph. What we call that singular thing is up to us. Yeah. Right, right. And Jung yeah. would say, we call it the incarnation of the self. Yeah. Hmm. That's really cool. I, I had a friend who supports those work we do with this youth group of queer kids from all over the world. And many of them show up with new names, new genders, new, new pronouns. And I had a friend who was just pretty curious about it. He's like, well, where's the limit though? Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't allow a student to show up and call themselves an alien. Right. And I was like, well, well Mace calls himself an alien. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> and he's like, well, where do you draw the limit? What about vampire? And I was like, uh, if, if somebody was like literally biting people and sucking their blood, I'm sure I would say that's not appropriate, <laughs> but if somebody wants to call themselves a vampire, I was like, sure, go ahead. Yeah. And especially being, yeah, just like exploring, exploring. Well, then what's the archetype? What's that right. significant? Right. Why do they, why are they wanting to say vampire? You know, it's interesting. Yeah. As long as come we under the, it symbolically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And we would put that under the archetype of mercury. Mm. That, and even in, in common language, being mercurial, or or even the substance quicksilver, mercury. Yeah, yeah. it's a metal, mm. but it, because it's in a solution, at, at least in our the temperature of our environment, it will fit into any mold. Mm. Mm. It remains itself. It's always mercury, but because it's liquid, you can put it in anything, and you can continue putting it in an infinite number of containers. And it will take those properties. Mm. And it's also a volatile chemical. Yeah. You know, it, it can evaporate even in our environment. Ooh, geez. I, I feel like this is in many ways just exposing just the the vast array, like array of language and archetypes and symbols and and just having them, you get to just work with them in, in the world, say, wow, what symbol, what's what's going on there? Kind of this becomes a whole new a whole new lens of which to interpret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and that's really all that we're doing in a way. We're just offering different archetypal f- lenses, and then it's really up to the analysand to decide, ah, that's useful, ah, that's not useful. Yeah. And and usually it's a swell of feeling that yeah. lets us know that there's some connection to it. Yeah. Whew. Um. I feel like this is probably a a good starting point. You guys have given us so much of your time. Um, I'm so thankful for, for this conversation. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, it was great talking to you guys. And if your listeners want to know more about dreams, they can check out dream school where it's a 12 month program. And uh, we walk you through how to work with your dream very much as how Joseph and I were working with your dream today. I love that. And, they can find us at thisjungianlife.com and everything is kind of right there. All, all the links and whatnot. J-U-N-G-I-A-N. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Union. Um, well, man, I hope we get to do it again someday, honestly. It's really fun talking with you two and we're huge fans of your podcast. And mm-hmm. 
This was so fun. Well, I appreciate you um, bringing in your own soul into the discussion because it allows us to then demonstrate how Jungians engage mm. living beings. <laughs> no, it's not theoretical. <laughs> right? Yeah, right? yeah. Right, so like, yeah, as you're naming an architect to see what a certain one's touched, and you're like, whoa, you know, to experience that, it, it clicks again more. And the vulnerability of it. I think the listeners um, right now can't see it, but you both have this very vulnerable look mm. in your faces mm. at the moment. Mm. Mm. I may be misreading that, but it feels that way to me. Mm. And I think that's part of the activation of these forces begins to kind of create a quaking mm. in the soul. Mm. And that vulnerability is is the pressure to accommodate What's emerging? Mm-hmm. 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 Wow. Well, if we're just complimenting each other or whatever, <laughs> I, I'd say I'd say uh, <laughs> y- you guys provide a very steady presence, you know. So I think it makes a lot of space and maybe you'd say safety to to have that vulnerability arise. Mm-hmm. So you guys seem to be pretty good at what you do. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much, um, listeners. This will be, this, this will come out in like three weeks. Yeah, so we'll yeah. send you guys a copy too. Yeah. Um, Great. So thank you guys so much. Keep up the um, good work. Can't wait to connect thank again. You. Yeah. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye-bye.